Food and Beverage Magazine Live, bringing food and beverage to life with your hosts, James Beard Award winner Jennifer English and Food and Beverage Magazine publisher Michael Politz. Featuring leaders in the hospitality, branded food and beverage, and CPG industries, many of whom are Jennifer and Michael's friends in the business. For an informal and informative conversation where friends in the business share the latest intel, ideas, and best practices. Live, juicy inside scoop from the tastemakers, newsmakers, bread bakers, drink shakers, spoon lickers, clam diggers, farms, foodies, and friends of the food and beverage magazine world. Here are your hosts, Jennifer English and Michael Politz. Who am I? You're, you're trying to be me. You're trying to be Jennifer English. Hi, everybody. I'm Jennifer English. You're, you're welcome to our show today. I'm going to talk you to death. What's going on? What is that? Is that a peach? That is a perfect. Let me show you something. No. I, I went to my garden and I picked a perfect tomato. Let me see. Oh, it looks like Jet. That's actually a tomato that looks like your Isn't little Isn't he boy. cute? Yeah, he's cute, it's right? A super cute tomato. Is that a cute tomato? It's a very cute tomato. I know. What do you think? Let's leave it on the whole show. Okay. Really? Well, Today, we're getting very serious because we're getting all legislative and we're talking to people who have been instrumental in changing law. I know. <laughs> I love that. Do that again. <laughs> Do it again? Do it again. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> oh, you mean this? <laughs> this is you, Jennifer. <laughs> Go ahead. Good thing we're... Good thing we're doing a talk show. Mm -hmm. Hey, uh, since I saw you last, mm -hmm. uh, I've had a, a health scare, mm -hmm. and I am very glad to be here. That's all I can say. Well, we're happy you're here. We're looking at your eyes. Is it your left eye? This one. Oh, that's the right eye. Well, just by the way, something's wrong with your left eye, too. <laughs> something's wrong with my face. Well, that's not nice, Jennifer. Hey, if I said kidding. that, all your friends would email me. I know. Hey, listen, uh, we've got a really interesting show today because if you want something to change in your community, in your city, in your state, in the country, mm -hmm. you've got to lobby because it's the idea behind democracy. Oh, I always wanted to be there. a lobbyist. Jennifer, I wanted, I wanted to be a lobbyist. There is so much I money in that. Were. It is all relationships. It's everything I've ever done. No one's offered me a job. I mean, I own the largest publication in the food and beverage industry. Why has no one said, Michael, we need to offer you a job to be a lobbyist? You're educated. You're beautiful. You're beautiful. You're you smart. are your own super PAC. You know your way around Washington. And man, can you work a room? I can work a room like no one. It's terrific. I know. It's true. So maybe Robert will be able to help us. So he'll get me a contract. So getting things done in Washington, as you well know, growing up in the area. Well, you call it Washington. If you grew up in the area, it's called Washington, D.C. Washington. I can't go that far. It's called Washington. It's true. My grandma, Washington. Yeah. The old soldier's home. Well, I will say my grandparents are actually buried at Arlington National Cemetery. I drove by them. That's, that's kind of a, a thing. Yeah, there you but, go. You visit. So, so in Washington, people know how to get stuff done. 
And we're, I'm going to anticipate, see, an entire um, slate of legislation that's going to have a profound and direct impact on the hospitality industry today <laughs> and the ancillary businesses that keep us going on our food supply, on our, our distribution, our food distribution system. There are men and women in all the sectors related to the hospitality industry that are that are really having a tough time. We're hearing stories about yeah. you know produce getting left out on the fields because we can't get people to pick I it. And- I you know I don't like to hear that. Do we have to talk about it? Because I don't like to hear. I think it's a, it's horrible. There's people starving and there's produce and, being dumped. And we're not making the connect. But I think they're connecting now, aren't they? Wasn't that what I recently heard? Well, there's a lot going on, and to get a sense about what has happened. We, this is our breaking news show. And what passes for breaking news in the food world is stuff that's happened within the last few days that hasn't really hit the store shelves or your grocery cart yet, but is going to impact every dimension of our edible lives here in America. We have two amazing guests who are going to help explain the unexplainable and inexplicable mm. to us. Is it inexplicable or unexplainable? Both. Why do you have to use big words, Jennifer? Because, you know, our audience doesn't like that. They, I get emails that she, her words, are too, there's too many syllables in well, it. They actually said there's too many syllables in the name Jennifer. <laughs> Let's bring on Robert, because you can't keep okay, a lot so of Robert, writing those. Robert, Wait a minute. Those guys Robert, get like a thousand bucks an hour or more. So <laughs> what are we doing? Why are we keeping them waiting? Oh, my that? gosh. Who are we to keep such an important man waiting? I get it. I mean, Robert Kessler is the Senior Vice President of Public Policy for a very important organization that has been on the show with us before and was introduced to me uh, by my friend uh, Michael Politz. Uh, United um, Fresh Produce Association is a, is a trade organization that is, that is helping on so many levels. And we're going to have the uh, Public Policy Senior Vice President, Robert Gunther. Welcome to the show. Thank you. You're here to explain some things to us, and um, I think we have to get a little bit remedial before we dive into the heavy-duty stuff, which is we've got some news, legitimate news, as an organization that prides itself on, you know, having the most up-to-date information about our industry and how it affects us all. uh, We're grateful to you being on to to explain it to us. First of all, tell everybody just the, the elevator version of United Fresh Produce Association, what you guys do. So uh, thank you again, Jennifer, for having me on the on the on the show today. Um, you know, Hello, United Fr- wait a minute. all right, you didn't thank me. That was bizarre. Michael, thank you. You weren't yeah. on the screen. I'm but I'm here. I'm always watching, <laughs> Robert. Don't you worry. <laughs> I've learned my lesson for I'm my always first watching. time on. So but um, so United Fresh is a uh, national trade association. We represent the entire supply chain of fresh produce. So starting with the growers all across this country, internationally as well, uh, moving up into wholesale distributors, food service distributors, uh, people who slice and dice, so the fresh cut uh, operations as well, uh, all the way to retail and food service and and to uh, uh, restaurants uh, as well. So we like to say in our world, uh, in, in our association, that you know we represent the entire supply chain. Uh, we really try and and, and try to develop uh, policies and programs that help that supply chain from grower all the way up through consumer. A lot has been reported during COVID about the uh, limitations on the 
protein and meat side of the distribution system. That the meat industry has gotten some really bad headlines from, you know, producers having to euthanize uh, animals. Uh, we've heard stories about fruit and produce uh, being left in the field. Uh, and, and some of us don't even know what to believe. How bad has COVID been for your side of the world, which is the plant-based side of the world? Well, Jennifer, it's been extremely difficult. Uh, if you can go back and remember back in March, you know, March 13th, Friday the 13th, uh, when uh, literally overnight or really within a five-day five day span, the entire country shut down in terms of, of different states shutting down through that, through that five-day period. And what you saw in that situation was, especially in the food service side, so restaurants, schools, uh, hotels, uh, you know, hospital, other hospitality areas all shut down. And that really represents about 40% of the fresh produce supply chain. That's so it's a huge number. So when you look at the entire supply chain here in the United States, you know, 60% goes to retail, 40% in that food service side. And overnight that happened. So there was product that was being grown, product that had already been harvested, product that was even, you know, moving from the suppliers to the restaurants and other foods, schools and other areas, and it had to be turned around. So we had this huge seizure uh, of, of, of product that had to be, we had to try and figure out what to do with that. And then that was like a short-term kind of process. But long-term looking at as, as the states and other, you know, the country continued to shut down, how do we help the food service industry, uh, you know, move forward and try to, you know, kind of continue to operate in, in some fashion as restaurants and other areas were shut down. Robert, let's talk numbers. The produce industry as a total number is a giant number. Let's let's tell people because it's shocking how large a number it is relative to the U.S. economy. So in terms of, of economy, uh, you know, we're, we represent well over, you know, $100 billion worth of, of, of product. Uh, in the supply chain. Uh, when you look at the, you know, I, I'll go back to what we were talking about. A uh, billion dollars a week, and I'll focus on food service a lot because that's what we're focusing on today. A billion dollars a week of produce is moved through the supply chain in that food service side. So that's $52 billion a year. The other 60% obviously goes to retail. So it's a big number that represents, and that's just the supply chain. That's not the ancillary jobs. So, so we're talking about at least two and a half billion dollars a week of produce happening. Overall, yes, that's exactly right. Wow. So that's moving through again to retail, from growers to retailer, and obviously again through the through the, through the supply chain and the food service side. Wow, Michael, that's, that's a big, big number. It's a big number, but it also includes the peach you're going to eat right now. <laughs> Just saying. I'm going to change that to Jennifer. Jennifer Angles misses peaches. <laughs> Listen, chef and friend, uh, Farmer Lee Jones. Uh, oh, here so we go. Back to him again? When, Do we know any other farmers? <laughs> You're always talking about Farmer Lee. Is something going on? Is he sending you produce? <laughs> peaches are in season right now. Robert, when they're in season, eat them three meals a day. Right. <laughs> I like pears particularly. Listen, before we get into the heavy duty stuff, Robert, um, yeah. Michael and I talk about our friends in the business. And as our friend in the business, help us be aware as consumers 
of the topic we're talking about. What does United Fresh want us as consumers to know and be aware of about where we are given COVID, given what seasons we're in? How can we like make the, what's the silver lining here? How can we make the best of this moment in time? So I, I hope that at the end of the day that, you know, the consumers can appreciate the supply chain and how that impacts, uh, you know, the, the, the flow of product to, to, to their, to, to the customers, to the consumers, whether it's at retail, whether it's getting it at the, at the supermarket or whether it's eating it in a restaurant. These yeah. have been very challenging times for the entire food supply. Um, you know, fresh produce, I mean, you know, it, it's not just about growing it. It's about harvesting it. It's about moving it, keeping it fresh. Uh, that has created quite a, a challenge during the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. And I think trying to keep that, that especially that workforce uh, viable and workforce safe is a critical part, component of this. And we're doing that every day. Uh, and it's a challenge, but we're trying to do that every day to give them the safest uh, options in terms of safest, you know, uh, area to, to, to work in. Robert Gunther is joining us. He is the Senior Vice President of Public Policy for United Fresh Produce Association. Recently, there was some legislation that is attempting to remedy part of the problems we face as a produce supply chain. And as part of our hospitality industry, we're part of that, you're part of that, we're part of this together, we're all in this together. What can you tell us about what the problem was that got identified that turned into legislation? So I think the biggest problem we had was, I go back to uh, the situation we had in March, where there was there was this situation where there was product moving through the supply chain and all of a sudden everything shut down. Right. And I think what people don't quite understand is that, you know, distributors are not only food suppliers, uh, they are essential financial customer, uh, restaurant customers needs. Uh, restaurants buy food on payment terms that are essentially, you know, kind of generate revenue from those sales and then they pay back their, their, their suppliers. These are 30 to 60 day terms usually. So when all of a sudden this, the, 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 restaurant food service industry shut down. Um, it really provided, it really uh, was unable for those restaurants and other food service uh, areas to pay their distributors and in turn those distributors paying their growers. So it was a huge challenge. It's still, the debt is still there. Uh, hopefully as as soon as, you know, slowly the, in the, the country opens up, we can we can get some more equity into the system. But right now we still have that debt. You know, we estimate in just produce alone about five billion dollars of debt is sitting there at this point in time, based on that immediate shutdown of, of of the country, which a big business can afford to carry. But let's face it, many of the small yep. companies can't. Michael, That's this right. is up your alley because Michael is, for for all his bluster, Michael uh, Politz is one of the keenest businessmen I've ever met, uh, and I learn more from him every day. And his his acumen when it comes to assessing a situation like this, like he zeroes in, like he sees where the problem is. So, so it sounds like you, you as an organization have done the same thing and are identifying where the problem is. What did you come up with as a potential solution, and how did you get that into the legislative pipeline? Wait a minute. So, hold on, Robert. First, she's saying that I can do all this on my own, but you as an organization together need to come up with what I just came up with on my own. What does that say about me? She really must like me. 
She what? does. <laughs> I don't even know how that's possible. <laughs> Every time you do whatever you can for people, not yeah. like you, and they yeah. just won't stop. Jeez, Jennifer, thank you. <laughs> so, anyway, so when you look at look at what's happened thus far in the terms of the policy, the legislation, the work on the, the administration is done. It's really focused on several areas. It's focused on the growing side of the industry. So there's programs right now related to the growing side of getting payments based on losses they incurred, but also at the up, the, the, the other end, like on the pro, uh, Paycheck Protection Program. Where say, doesn't Paycheck Protection Program already cover you guys? It does at some level, but really where that lost area is, is that middle food service distributor and where that funding basically can be uh, used on. It can't really be used in that uncollected uncollected debt. So what we came up with uh, was the concept of creating a basically a tax credit to offset that uncollectible debt incurred by direct results of the of the of the COVID shutdown. Um, it's ourselves, the fresh produce industry, uh, the meat and deli uh, food service industry, the fisheries industry, those who serve that um, that sector of a restaurant uh, that allows them, these companies then, if this bill would pass, to potentially uh, create give a tax credit and thus would relieve them of that debt. And so then in well, turn- Let's go back a minute. Okay. The farmers, the growers, what do you call them? The growers, the growers? The farmers, growers, farmers. yeah. Growers. So the farmers and growers supply the distributors, right? Mm -hmm. The yep. distributors pay that. Right. Then the distributors are supposed to then go and say like Cisco, US Foods, Chef's Warehouse, whoever it is, then go and and, and the retail, or the, not retail, but the next level, which would be the restaurants and the, the, the uh, grocery stores, but then come to these distributors and pay them for the product, right? That's right. So, so the money that's missing is where at the distributor middle level because there's none of these people buying this. So, where where the money is missing basically is where we were in a situation where the distributors had provided credit to those uh, food service, and then in turn, when everything shut down, they didn't have the ability to pay those uncollected debts back, the accounts receivable back. Right. So, in turn, and this and is then, so much pain, Robert. That it's yep. not just uncomfortable. This has put you out of business numbers, right? That's right. I mean, we're talking about billions of dollars. Overall, if you look at the entire, and especially with a perishable commodity like we have uh, in, in, the, in the seafood industry and some of the meat and deli industry, I mean, we certainly have a very perishable commodity and you can't just you know, move it to somewhere else. Right. Uh, it, 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 it's going to be lost. Uh, you know, hopefully it gets some into the food bank and the feeding and feeding groups. But at the end of the day, a lot of product was lost because of that supply chain seizure uh, during that time. Uh, so what happened next? Are, is this now the law of the land or is it further down the pipeline? Where are, where do we stand? Cause I know we got some notice of news from you guys and that's the so, reason we're doing yeah. this today. So great question. So yesterday, uh, Congressman Darren LaHood from Illinois, Congressman Jimmy Panetta from California introduced the providing liquidity for uncollectible sales. Say that That's three times. No, PLUS Act. I'll say that three times. So we're calling it the PLUS Act. And again, what this legislation really does, it provides that tax credit for un offset to offset the uncollectible debt that was occurred during this during this time. So it really provides a, a tax credit and in turn 
then allows, once restaurants and other uh, institutional uh, buyers, institutional customers come back online, it allows those companies to, to then uh, provide credit to those restaurants and other areas where they where they were uh, may potentially had some some uh, uncollected debts. Robert, this is making my head spin, but the bottom line is that everybody in the food chain that is negatively impacted that may go out of business as a consequence of this, we're talking now the second layer in. We know the restaurants are hit. There's reports that 60 to 80 percent of restaurants may not open up again. That's right. Following this back up the food chain, the next level are those distributors. And that's who we're talking about here. And it may not be the sexiest story and it may not be a headline right. we're going to see in the Wall Street Journal. But this is something that we're all going to see when we start to imagine opening back up and then having nowhere to go and nowhere to turn for the things historically that we knew that we could get from our friends, our partners and our vendors, these distributors. And I think that's an important part, the friends and partners that you just mentioned, because this is a partnership. It's a very unique industry. The food industry is very unique as you guys live and breathe this every day uh, from the entire supply chain. So those farmers who are working directly with those distributors, those farmers who are working directly with restaurants in other areas. I mean, there's it's a really it's a family. It's a partnership. And what we have seen thus far and based on what's happened thus far is this middle sector of the supply chain, it's very critical. As I mentioned, you know, a billion dollars a yeah. week of, in, in produce alone. Um, they need some, some, some tools, so to speak, in their toolbox to make sure they can remain viable as a business and then be able to but not only buy from farmers, but also supply those restaurants that they've supplied in the past. Robert, I have a crazy question, and, and this just speaks to my ignorance, so bear with me. In Chicago, they have the, the exchange, the commodities exchange, right? Is, right. And that's, that's where yep. it is. And, and you have things like uh, the frozen concentrated orange juice that depends on one of your produce crops. How come more of these produce crops don't make it to the place where the pork bellies go and other things happen? Maybe they do. Maybe I just don't know about it. Why isn't there a safety net already built into the system this way? Great. Wow. That's an interesting question. I've, in my 30 plus years doing this stuff, I have never had that question. So it's an interesting question. I would say because of the volume of okay. a product, it's not, vo it's not enough, not enough volume to create a, a futures market is what you're talking about. The Mer Chicago Mercantile Exchange, things like that. Uh, there's just never been a, futures market, except maybe for farmers and orange juice, as you mentioned, uh, that really creates the volume and interest. Soy. In, I mean, soybeans, I suppose, would be in that category, wouldn't it? Yeah, corn, soybeans, meat, uh, you know, frozen orange juice. I mean, there's a whole host of other cat, live cattle uh, in the, in that futures market. And, and, um, if, and if we as a, as a culture are turning plant-based, I would imagine that the plants deserve a place on the exchange. Hey, Jennifer, excuse me, you're so political. <laughs> I just stepped in it, I apologize. Well, the other thing is this. What, what, tell us this, Robert. When all yes. this stuff was going to waste, right? Or we, we know we're talking about the Bible, it was waste, right? Why right. couldn't that have been processed and frozen and, and to those kind of plants, right? Like Clarence Bird's Eye back in the day. Yeah. yeah. Just couldn't get there in time? It couldn't get there in time. I mean, I think there's several reasons. It couldn't get there in time. The it's interesting, and this is something again I've even learned uh, during this during this 
uh, pandemic is that the food service supply chain, and that's again from grower to customer, and the retail supply chain is very distinct. They don't cross over a ton. There are some who do, but for the most part, they are very distinct. So, so when we had this again closure and people were looking to move product into the retail supply chain, uh, it really they couldn't they couldn't manage that. Very they few. Didn't they, know who to call. they probably didn't even know who to call, right? Because at some level, you're right. Products I, and food service products have always never connected. There's this disconnect, exactly. right? Right, completely yeah. different customers. When I have someone that says we want to advertise in Food and Beverage Magazine, you know, it's who's your market, what's your goal, right? Because yeah. we, you know, restaurants, hospitality, food service, right? A lot of times, if it's CPG and stuff, we really have to focus on how that's going to be, um, what the message is going to be, right? Yeah. Because it's a yeah. whole different market. Yeah. So then the next question is, you can't sell it. You got it there. You can't sell it. It's already been harvested what happens to it then and i would say if you know while there was a lot of unfortunate stories of product being in the ground and not being harvested uh, a lot of that product still was being able to be uh moved into the uh emergency feeding uh institution yeah. the best it could um some of the growers just kind of you know said i i just it, it's not i mean i hate to say this but it's just you know the 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 cost of bringing of of harvesting this outweighs a lot of my you know business decisions. Uh, gentlemen, uh, we have the incredible uh, chef uh, Michael Guinor, who's patiently waiting backstage. Can I bring him in this conversation? He's one of the pioneers uh, in the modern culinary hospitality industry. He's uh, a, he, pioneer, a pioneer, Jennifer. Do you know what year that was? How is he still? I want you to go back to the days when the James Beard Foundation was just coming into existence, when the chefs around the world were beginning to recognize that, that what lay in front of us and what lay ahead of us uh, was substantial and significant. Uh, and uh, part of weaving this show together today, uh, we got notice of a piece of legislation out in California uh, that had allowed the previously banned foie gras to come back in. And you may say, well, the restaurants are closed. What, what, of course, what difference? Well, how about High Chef? How about High Chef? I mean, you brought him on and you're still going. Hi, Chef. Let's see what he sounds like, Jen. Hi. How are you? Chef, Chef Michael, you know, nice to see you again. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us on. And I want to introduce you to Robert Gunther from the United Fresh Produce Association. Hi, Michael. It's a pleasure. Yes, you too. Go ahead, so, Jen. Now, where are you so going to go with all this? What about Hudson Valley? Doesn't he so own that? I'm going to let you take over. But Hudson Valley Foie Gras is one of the companies that has allowed us to become appreciative and fluent in one of the great culinary art forms that has sort of found its way here from our more mature food cultures around the world, namely the French cuisine culture. Uh, and, and again, this is a somewhat political topic and today's our political show and, and, and on both fronts, we have breaking news. So Robert, hang on for a second while we turn to Michael and say, Michael, what's gone on in the last week that has been the breaking legislative news? What happened out in California? Well, 
I'll start by giving a bit of a background. Uh, Fuaga has been around for over 5,000 years, and almost since its inception, it's always been a controversial product. And of course, the nature of feeding the duck, which to the uneducated eye may seem cruel or inhumane, although really not, as far as our opinion, there's been many vets around, and, and the debate has existed for, for thousands of years. Um, we, we started Hudson Valley for a guy in the United States in New York um, in 92 uh, or 91, uh, so quite many years ago. And of course, when we started, it was happily greeted, as, as you, you are correct. We added a, a great culinary icon to the American scene. But of course, through time and as animal rights activists became more and more in, familiar with the product, involved with it, then, then the controversy continued. Over the past 15 years or so, we've gone through various ups and downs in dealing with the animal rights activists. Namely, it started in the city of Chicago, where there was a city council ban. Later on, there was a California ban, which uh, was on production and uh, the selling of Waga, and that was reversed. And then a few years later, that came back. Currently, there is a proposal in the City Council of New York to ban Fuaga, the serving of Fuaga, not the production like California, but the serving of Fuaga in, uh, or the selling of Fuaga in New York City restaurants, which we have appealed and hope to reverse with the aid of the state of New York. What has happened recently in California is uh, earlier this week, um, a circuit court judge, uh, basically the law in California was that Fuaga was not allowed to be produced or served in California. Now, the issue of whether Fuaga can be sold to consumers uh, via from New York to California was a question that went in front of the judge. Um, when the judge passed a ruling that Fuaga indeed can be sold from New York into California, there was some misunderstanding in the interpretation of the ruling that now Fuaga can indeed be sold by California restaurants. That's not the case. So. In a sense, we have a partial victory in that we are now able to send product to a California consumer who buys the product, orders it via internet or phone or in any manner, and then he's allowed to buy it, pay for it, and consume it. It did not reverse the issue of whether a California chef can indeed sell the product as a dish to a consumer. Wow. Wow. Hmm. So you can't go in a restaurant, Jen, and get a, you can't go to L.A., jump into a restaurant and grab it. Correct. Legally, you can't. Now, what's going to happen is there's going to be more testing of this, the way that happened in the past, where a chef conceivably could sell you a filet mignon and sell it for $38 and top it with four guy and say, well, that's on me. Now, clearly, I'm not sure that that can stand the test uh, of the courts because, in a, in a sense, the chef is covering his costs one way or the other. And that's a debate that will range on. And the question is, is it going to be a chef who wants to put his reputation, negative or positive, online to test this, and whether he wants to go through the legal um, headaches of dealing with it, which is questionable. And I wouldn't expect any chef, although many are friends of ours, to, uh, to test this legislation. Um, the animal rights activists have already warned us that if we were to... Um, sell Fuaga into the state of California, they were going to sue us for for something or other, which they can technically always do, and it's going to come in front of a judge again. So it, it, it's an ongoing battle. So it is, um, I hate to use the word victory or defeat, but um, we're, we're happy that we can at least test this again 
And uh, and I, I assume that battle will go on past my years of managing this company. One of the things that begs to be addressed, gentlemen, in this, to my mind, is that because foie gras is a luxury product, it's the kind of thing that has been almost exclusively enjoyed in restaurants. I don't know very many people who say, yep, come over for dinner. I'm going to make foie. Well, and pate, that's not true. You can do a pate. People have pate all the time at their house. Right. There, there's more of those people these days. Mm. Um, you're probably familiar with Ariane Dagan and D'Artagnan, yeah. which is a, one of our key distributors. And, uh, and naturally, with the um, as COVID evolved and if people have learned to cook again and, and enjoy small luxuries at home, they might not be going on the Ritz-Carlton Paris, but they will then um, treat themselves to caviar and foie gras and truffles when possible. So there has been uh, a great rise in our internet sale. Um, it's also Im important to understand, although our foie gras business has suffered dramatically, and to give you a, a concept, uh, prior to COVID, we were producing probably about 3,500 foie gras ducks per week. Now we're at about 600. Wow. Um, of which 400 or so are, are uh, sold to individual retail. Now, we also have quite a thriving business in further production. So we utilize the entire foie gras duck, which is actually important to understand from an animal rights standpoint. Um, so we're not nose to tail, but we're beak to, uh, beak to claw. And, um, and we have a whole line of torchons and tureens and duck food, like Baba Gump impersonation <laughs> a line of turings and torsions and prosciuttos and confit and so on um also as we were seeing the writing on the wall evolve over the years and as we in the back of our heads knew that there could have been be a, a black swan event which could have been anticipated by the stock market and, and elsewhere we started con not converting but adding um, a very high-end line of uh, fresh chicken production about five years ago. So we're producing about 50,000 uh, organic air-chilled chickens, which mm. thankfully uh, allowed us to survive this, um, this, this catastrophe. And so we uh, are living off retail, as everybody else is. Right. And um, we're obviously hopeful that in New York, as there are bigger issues than, um, than letting more workers be unemployed, that New York City will hopefully be sensible and, and reverse their stand on this, which New York State Agricultural is, is helping to pursue. Um, just to address the issue of animal rights for a second, so people understand it, um, the process by which you produce foie gras, which literally means fat liver, from the two words in French, foie and gras, um, we actually in, uh, uh, insert a, a plastic flexible plastic tube into the duck's gallop and feed it much in the way that the mother would feed its, its young. Ducks, when they're born, when they're when they are, are raised, are, don't eat by themselves. The mother actually feeds them with their fish and other things and actually insert it into the duck's crop. And ducks have a calcified esophagus, which allow, as other waterfowl do, which allows them to do that. The anatomy of a duck is very different than the anatomy of other mammals. Uh, well, ducks are not mammals, but they're mammals like ourselves. And so the process of feeding duck in this manner, we know, doesn't cause harm, damage, or pain. However, the inevitable imagery of a duck being force-fed, let's say, or hand-fed, and when you add that to what, uh, Jennifer, you addressed a little earlier, which is it's a product that 
is consumed by a very small part of the population, ones who are maybe considered to be quote unquote one percenters. And when you add the two words foie gras, and in light of the attitude of we maybe should not luxuriate and so on, makes it a very, very easy target for animal rights activists. And um, unlike chickens or beef, or, which are difficult targets, foie gras is an easy one for all of those factors. And I think the information is greatly misunderstood. And of course, there's science behind it, although we are a country that at this point doesn't seem to believe in science, um, it seems. But uh, there is science. There's veterinarians, there's Cornell, there's, there's a slew of information. My, my feeling on it is that people should um, understand the facts and should judge for themselves. And, and if they're comfortable with it, terrific. And if they're not, they're not. However, that's where we stand. So I just want to point out, yes to this, but no to that, but they're really not all that different. I mean, let's just be honest. I'm going to be vulgar for a moment, and I don't mean to offend anybody. Vulgar. Stop it. Stop. <laughs> he just called, and he said, chef, chef. Go ahead, Jennifer. If we looked and, and publicized uh, <laughs> images of animal husbandry at the beginning of a process to address the, the cattle, and I mean, there are about a hundred more horrifying things one could horribleize and weaponize message-wise in the food industry. You know, I mean, that's- You can't just pick and choose what you're gonna, you either yeah. have to be, cons I mean, I, I'm gonna argue that you have to understand that the reason factory farming is a problem versus the kind of farming that you do with, with Hudson Valley is if you are careful and conscientious and thorough whether the farmers who are producing the vegetables that we're talking about with Robert or the, the ducks and the chickens that we're producing through the Hudson Valley program, if you're a careful producer and you're respectful at every part of the process, I think that's more important than almost anything else. Which, which we are, and that, that part of our production has hardly ever been questioned. We're known to be uh, as, as careful a producer as can be, and to just put facts behind that, our mortality rates average around just short of 2%. The chicken industry, and this is for Fogat Production, right. the chicken industry ranges more like four, turkeys like eight. We have a caretaker to animal ratio of one to 300, which is unheard of in poultry because Fogat is a high-end product. And the more careful we are with production, the better the results are. So the, the question of how our farm compares, let's say, other Fogat farms or other farms in general has never been questioned. It really, the, the beginning and end of the debate is the feeding process. That's really directly what it's about. As far as caring, you know, obviously we've heard that argument before. I, my, my own personal feeling on it is what makes this country great is that there are people to advocate for everything. Just because you, someone may abuse dogs doesn't mean you shouldn't abuse cats and, and, and so on and so on. So there's people who care about various things and they all ought to all have a voice and express their opinion. And I'm not quite sure if, if it's a wholesale process. I mean, I think that, you know, every every farming aspect should be controlled and produced and voiced. Um, and uh, you're right that there are probably things that are significantly worse than for that, factory farming of pigs and so on. However, thankfully, there are people who look out for everything. And that I think that's a good thing. Jennifer, can, I some, some rest? can I show some pictures on how delicious... Delicious Hudson Valley duck. The recipes on my website they have. I'm afraid of where we're going with this, but sure. Don't be afraid, Jennifer. I want you to embrace everything I do. Chef, 
Sure. She acts like I'm, I'm, I'm one of those chef guys that, you know, run around like maniacs. I'm not a chef, Jennifer. I'm, an, I'm, a, I'm a journalist. I want to show you. Look at this. Look at this country. Like Beautiful. And that's bacon, right, chef? That's bacon on top of it. Most probably, yes. It, it, it could be. That's called a uh, terrine, uh, country terrine. And generally, it's a mix of pork or rabbit or chicken with some measure of foie gras very often, anywhere from 10 to, uh, to 60%. Uh, that's a beautiful dish. Oh, that's oh, from, that's from my book, I believe. Yes, I saw that on your website. Yeah, that, that looks incredible. Yeah, with a little truffle mm -hmm. on it. It's we have a book called Foie Gras Passion, which actually uh, won various awards um, and was nominated for at the Beard House as well. In uh, it was published in two thousand. That's a classic Torino Foie Gras. Beautiful. Black eyed peas. Jennifer, look how beautiful that is. I'm, I'm I'm swooning uh, because because there's, there are there are a few food. Oh, this is my favorite way. To oh la la! Uh, that's a oh, classic beard for a guy with, I believe, grilled peaches. Peaches. Ooh, mm. Jennifer, he said peaches. Yeah, peaches. <laughs> By the way, I can't help thinking how, in a sense, when I look at you, I almost think I'm looking at myself. I classically wear a black t-shirt just like you, and when I do, and my hair is a little shorter, we have a very similar look. Well, I was going to put these on to become you, and then I was going to call Charlie Palmer on Zoom. Wow. I was going to say, Charlie, what are you doing? Why aren't you ordering more stuff? Yeah, I love that. Chef. All right, so I'll do this. There's that smile. There it is. Chef, we would love to have you come back on with us in a couple oh. of weeks. And one of the things that we feel compelled to address, and we don't have time to do it today, but let's remind people how possible it is. And I think a lot of people have come into the kitchen during COVID and the quarantine and rediscovered cooking and have been um, overcoming uh, their fears into a realm of fearlessness about food. I think people are now beginning to realize that they could do this. Sure. That if it's something that can happen, they could possibly enjoy this at home again, especially for our audience. Jane, they can make this at home. This isn't hard to make. Yeah, but you know what, Michael? You got to remember our audience, our members of the hospitality industry, our readers, our members of the hospitality industry. So these are people who love food and they're going to be inclined to try it. I want to make mm -hmm. sure. We've got to show them how easy this is to do. Chef, will you come back on and cook with me in a couple of weeks? Absolutely. And Jennifer, oh. uh, just to play a little bit of inside baseball, you probably know we, we both have a very dear, longtime common friend in the name of Mitchell Davis. Oh. Uh, and Mitchell was the co-author, and his first big project was this book, For God Passion, which he wrote with me uh, just when he started entering uh, the food world after Cornell. And on a final note, you know, uh, as I am the chef also of a restaurant called Lola and work with many chefs around the country and have conducted so many culinary tours around the world and so on, we have some unique views on various facets of the food world from the economic side to, to, to the psychological aspects. And if you ever want to chat about any of them, I'll be happy to come on. And that's why we're here. Yeah, I want David Burke and Michael on the same show. I know. Wouldn't that be fun? David, David is a very close friend of mine, and David and I once had. Uh, David has a couple. Interestingly enough, that you bring that up, there, the book for God Passion is eighty-two recipes yeah. from eighty-one chefs around the world. The only one that has two recipes in the book 
is David. Yeah. And David and I had a company once that started producing the Army Family. So David would be a, if we can even understand what David says, it would be a lot of fun to have on. David, actually, I have a book out, Chef, called Guide to Restaurant Success. And David wrote in the endorsements in the back for me. David's a great guy. Yeah. He's not the potential. I don't know if you've had the pleasure of dining at Park Avenue Cafe, which was his first yeah. personal owned restaurant. Mm -hmm. And he's, he's, he and, you know, Charlie, you know, he's that generation just past Charlie Palmer and so on, who really is, in my mind's eye, the quintessential American chef. Yes. New York. So, and by the way, I like that you said Charlie is an older gentleman. I, I prefer to hear that. So what you're saying is, and I'm going to endorse that. I'm going to say he's the next generation after Charlie. Thank well, you. Thank yeah, you. Charlie's one generation of David <laughs> Charlie, let's say. So Charlie would be like a mentor to David. Yeah, no. Charlie may have needed that a little bit to know that. Charlie know. and Larry Fordion and uh, that group was the first group, and then they led to guys like George Marone at Aqua and Todd English sure. and uh, David Burke and sort of my generation, let's say. George and, Marone. And, and, where, where is George Marone, Jennifer? Where is George? Is he running with Michael Mina? Where is this guy? If it's 4 o'clock, he's probably taking a nap. <laughs> I haven't talked to George in so but again, long. You know, Michael, I come from Boston, and we have Chef Lydia Shire. And, sure. and there, there, of course. Just there are right. so many people who were so instrumental in getting us um, to break through into this richness in which we're living now that is giving rise to all of the topics we're talking about today. What um, year, hold on, Jennifer, what year did Hudson Valley start, your, your company start? 1991. So you were supplying with Grant was McPherson at the Bellagio and well, George. Actually, I got Grant his job at the Bellagio because... I was I was I put together an event called the Singapore Food and Wine Festival mm -hmm. where I cooked at the raffles. Elizabeth Blau I just talked to Elizabeth today. Okay, so Elizabeth was consulting the Bellagio when they opened with a group of restaurants at the same time that Jean-Louis Paladin and I mm -hmm. opened a restaurant at the Rio called Napa. Yeah. And Elizabeth knew that I am well traveled and she said, We have a this hotel that's gonna open in a year and a half, and we need a chef who's capable of handling what we're doing, which is 10 independent restaurants and so on and so on. Mm -hmm. I pointed her to Grant McPherson saying he's doing that, that exact thing at the Raffles in Singapore. Mm -hmm. Elizabeth flew to Singapore and hired him. So Grant you, and I go way. Here's the question, Chef. Did she hire him because of his hair or because of his ability? I would say <laughs> hair primarily. Yeah, that's what I thought. And, and um, <laughs> yeah. And that was when it wasn't gray. Now it's gray and it's black streaks in it. I mean, his hair. Is like a dramatic television series. I, I could not be writing a book how to make friends and influence people. Between <laughs> <laughs> the George Brown and Grant McPherson thing, and by the way, while we're adding Lydia Shire, I guess we've got to throw in Jasper White and that whole generation. Well, you know, we can always we can even it out by saying Carrie Simon because he was always the most beautiful human being that's ever lived, right? Carrie. Was, uh, and, but uh, how can you say that and not say that about John Louis at the same time? That's well, true. Carrie, we lost Carrie well before his time. Well, Jean Louis, you have to bring in Jimmy Sneed. And oh. if you throw Jimmy into the mix with Jean Louis, then you've got problems. Very hard to put both of them in the same sentence. As, <laughs> uh, Jimmy Sneed called me a few weeks ago saying that once in a while he still wakes up with a nightmare that Jean Louis is still alive. <laughs> oh, 
We got to call. I'm going to call Jimmy and we hang up with this this Jennifer. We're going to get him on next week. The frog in the and, and Michael, just for full disclosure, I actually work with Elizabeth at Blau and Associates on her consulting team. So that's how our worlds just continue to. Correct. Elizabeth is phenomenal. I mean, she was she was working at Le Cirque and she was very friendly with uh, Steve Wynn's daughter. And, uh, and she was just the right person to run the food and beverage program at the Bellagio when they opened. And John Louis and I were going to open at the Bellagio, but we, he just left the Watergate. And uh, it would have been a two-year wait for the Bellagio. And so we ended up uh, taking a position at, uh, at, the, at, at the Napa restaurant, at the Rio, and did four or five different James Beard dinners at that hotel, including with Graham McPherson and Greg Coons. And, and Andre Rocher, do you know Andre? Chef Andre Rocher from Vegas? Sure, of course. So Andre, yeah, so Andre had his Andre's French restaurant in that little that, house. That's now we're now we're roaming into institutions. Or institutional. Or institutional. <laughs> exactly. So those, we have I think there's a lot for us to catch up on down the line. Well, I wanna I wanna wrap this up by asking um, our guests, Michael uh Ginor, Chef Michael Ginor and uh, Robert Gunther. We're talking about food and politics. Each of you has brought a movement and uh, a, a, an attempt to, to make the world of food uh, be reflective with care and, and certainly with commerce uh, through legislation both on the federal level through the U.S. Congress and in the California state legislature, it begs the question, where do we exist in this time when our industry has gotten hit so particularly hard by COVID on the one hand, and yet on the other hand, gotten so much relief from the government? It feels like we're more political in the food space than ever before. And I wanted to allow each of you some time to talk about how you perceive this this crossroads of food and politics. Um, Robert, go ahead. You start. Okay. Well, I mean, I think it's a great question. I think the food industry is very focused, very driven, uh, and 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 trying to make sure that our supply chain is continues to thrive. Uh, food is a very essential part of how we live and what we do and how we. Uh, interact with 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 our friends and family, and I think this has really brought to light uh, a lot of these issues of, of of why food is such an important part, not just as growing and harvesting and and moving product around, but in terms of protecting and promoting fruits and fruit fruit, and especially for us, fruits and vegetables. This isn't just about restaurants; it's also for our industry about how we can teach the next generation to enjoy fruits and vegetables and, and other foods. Um, we spend a lot of time in that space. Uh, we spend a lot of time uh, working with the government, working with Congress to make sure schools have more fresh fruits and vegetables in their programs. The, uh, the SNAP program, the WIC program, all these different federal nutrition programs, you know, this is not just one part of it. It's an entire uh, supply chain, an entire area where we have to work together as an industry. We have to work together as a community to really try to drive uh, uh, better policy, better government uh, that helps our food industry continue to thrive and grow the best it can. 
Robert, before we let you go and wrap this up, Michael and I talk about the fact that everybody that comes on the show are our friends in the business. As our friend in the legislative lobbying business in Washington, D.C., our entire industry is looking to people like you, like the roundtable that happened a couple of months ago with the Independent Restaurant Commission. Right. We're looking to you as our representation in Washington from our industry. I, I don't know. Should we be encouraged? Should we be discouraged? Are the people in Washington paying attention? Are they foodies? Do they get who we are? Do they get what we do? Wait a More importantly, you start off telling him that we're, we're, he's our friend. I'm going to ask if that's true. Then move on. You're not making a horrible assumption. If I, if I ever said to Grant McPherson, I'm your friend, chef, we would have problems, wouldn't <laughs> No, I, I think that, you know, Jennifer, I think it's a great question again. Uh, I really think that, you know, what we're seeing is food, you know, the fact that food and agriculture were considered an essential part of, 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 the the, the, the the country uh, when COVID happened, uh, that they understood that, uh, that it created quite a connection with how policy and and and, and regulation work together. We still need to do a better job of, of, of coordinating. We need to we need to do a better job of probably of of you know kind of you know one food better than another food. We need to work together on that more. It's a it's a complete diet. It's a complete you know kind of uh, of nutrition process. Um, and I think we're, we're, we're moving in that, that direction, especially after this COVID. I've seen a lot of uni unity within the food industry that I have not seen before. And, and we're lucky in, in our food world to have people like Mitchell Davis, who just a couple of years ago went to Parma, Italy. And we had one of the, the most in, incredibly important summits, a global summit about all of the topics relative to food. And we had somebody helping to marshal all this together in the person of Mitchell Davis, who I think is doing an extraordinary job. But then again, I'm going to start gushing because I'm a giant Mitchell Davis fan, as mm -hmm. you know. But but Schiff, uh, let's come back to the topic about food and politics. You are in a very political, one might argue, category of the, of the food business because the very nature of the visibility of the um, awareness in your category uh, makes it so. Uh, and I wanted to give you the chance to address the, the, the question that we posed about food and politics. Do they coexist? And in this time in particular, how do we understand it to coexist? What can we do to understand this better? Well, first, I would be amiss not to uh, thank Jose Andres uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. from Washington, who has been um, a continue, continued proponent of policy and the culinary world, whether it was defending immigrants who are the base of our industry uh, to, of course, uh, world food and providing food in places that were very foreign to us, and now it's back at home, and for continuing to work on policy and the food supply and so on. Now, naturally, government and politics have always had uh, an intersect with the food world, whether you point to the prohibition of the 1920s to the USDA, supervising our food chain and the FDA and uh, drugs and medicines and so on. And so there's various crossroads between politics and government and food. Um, these days, naturally, the, the, the big questions that will emerge will be how can policy help our industry, which arguably is 
the most devastated industry beyond airlines, which God knows will have uh, help from the government, or mega hotel chains, which will also get some help and will survive. Our industry probably is facing, as an industry, the, har the harshest recovery. And some say that 25 to 45 percent of restaurants will not come back as their former selves. I mean, we're, fa we're facing a wholesale metamorphosis as an industry, Chef, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Now, um, I think those spaces that will be vacated by chefs who cannot afford to keep their business will probably be pre-occupied uh, by the next generation of chefs who will then go on to make new deals with the landlords that, that fit the circumstance. So I don't think th there's so many who claim that the restaurant industry will suffer greatly from the fact that they'll be gone. I'm not sure. The economic supply and demand are supply and demand. That's the rule of all conversations. And so I think that those spaces will be occupied again by chefs who will make better, well, better, less expensive deals with the landlords that make sense under the current circumstances. Um, we know that all those spaces are not going to become retail, as that industry is also uh, on the hooks. So, so the restaurants will survive, but many of our friends and peers will not survive in their current state. And so the question, and, and I'm not sure how much more help we're going to get from the government. And arguably, the problem that restaurants have right now, which might be alleviated in a few weeks, and, and I understand both sides of the coin, is that by paying, as you know, we're not a, a very high-paying industry, and where cooks were making anywhere from 500 to seven or $800 a week, now, between the unemployment and the $600 benefit, they're at 1100 There's no real incentive for them to come back to work. On one hand, I'm obviously extremely happy that they are making a living. On the other hand, as restaurants start opening soon, there's no real sense of urgency to come back to work, especially in light of all the other issues, the, the masks, the heat of the summer, the potential uh, reincarnation of the virus in its current form or as a mutated form in the fall. The uncertainty that lies ahead. So we we do have an eighteen, in my opinion, we have an eighteen month challenge in front of us. Uh, if you compare this to the Spanish flu of nineteen eighteen and and so on, although there are obvious differences, we do probably have an eighteen month psychological and physical barrier for this industry to come back to its former self. And that's usually how long it takes for people to kind of get over things. Um, if you look at the Chipotle issues that took 18 months to recover and so on and so on. But I'm not sure. So, so immediately the policy needs to address whether this $600 payment will continue, which I doubt it will. And then you have the issue of not everybody coming back to work and then relying on a 450 unemployment check. And that's going to be something that we're going to have to overcome sooner than later as those checks stop being paid on the 29th of July. And so we're going to have to see how that plays out. Now, of course, your question, I'm sure, was about farming and legal. And I guess my point is that I think those issues are to some degree going to take a back seat for the next, for the foreseeable future in order to address the bigger picture, which is securing the food supply, making sure that people yeah. who are producing our food are doing it safely. They're, you know, inherently, um, Lines in 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 uh, in processing plants are very very uh, are very uh, efficient, and so they're crowded. They are everything you do not want in in an epidemic. And so, 
addressing how those processing plants will go on to produce food that is affordable and efficient while at the same time safe is is, is a major concern, especially if we get yep. another uh, wave similar to the Spanish flu coming in September, October, November, and then you have the regular flu, which on top of which will be this, and, and it's going to be difficult. So I think policymakers are going to focus on immigration, getting people back to work, how to make it affordable, how do restaurants survive, how does food get supplied safely, and that's probably going to be more of the headlines until we get through this, which I foresee to be 18 to 24 months. One of the things that you've uh, addressed that I think is critical for us to point out is that some of the food uh, that historically has been produced and gone to the Michelin star restaurants all over the country are now in the adaptation pivot going directly to home cooks. You've seen at Hudson Valley that direct to consumer online retail is increasing. Um, Robert, on the on the produce side, I'll mention my friend Farmer Lee Jones from the Chef's yeah. Garden, who is doing these marvelous. Um, do you have any more, can we interrupt, Robert? Can you do something to hit the network and get us some more farmer friends? I mean, I don't know. She one guy. Just to address your point, which is important, we had a conference call this morning with all our all our different department heads. Where I, I traditionally. When we our distribution system is we produce and then we use distributors to sell to restaurants. And our priority was to protect the distributors and protect the restaurant. Mm-hmm. And in turn, retail was almost uh, overlooked or taboo, Michael. Taboo. I'm it sorry. Was tab- it was taboo. You okay. guys. So if you were to sell to retail, everybody would have been mad. So. Correct. The distributors would not have been yeah. happy. To some, arguably, the restaurants. So traditionally, to give you an, a specific example, foie gras, an A grade fresh foie gras was sold to a distributor at somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to $35 per pound. The distributor put a traditional 20% markup on it, and he went to the restaurant at $40 or so per pound. Retail, which was a few orders here and there a week, which was overlooked and, and considered an inconvenience to some degree, was priced at $100 per pound, which sort of made sense when you thought about the fact that you have to box it and ship it and so on and so on. I had a conference call with my people today saying, listen, I want to significantly slash the price of retail foie gras by half. It may, I don't know if people are going to conceive it as us making money hands over fist in the past or if quality is going to be questioned. I, I will overcome that. But we need to support the retail buyer. We need to make sure the price can be fair to the retail buyer. And we need to maybe drive the industry forward in the sense that companies such as Artanian and any competition we have will do the same because, again, for the foreseeable future, the retail buyer has come a long way and needs to be supported. And and uh, it's, it, it makes both financial sense as well as um, mensch sense. And so... Um, so that's what we're going to do very soon. Are you seeing a lot of your customers opening up to retail that normally wouldn't have? Like I know Chef Warehouse, for one, they were opening up to retail. And then we tripled our retail sales since COVID started. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I would say, yeah, what I would say to that is to your points about uh, distributor or direct to consumer, I think that was something that in the long term, that the distributors had in their mind that to use, but this really accelerated that type of business 
uh, uh, proposition uh, in, in, in the last four to six months now. It forced the issue. Yeah, exactly. Let's talk silver lining for, for food lovers, for people who really love and celebrate the culinary arts as one of the capital F fine arts. Being well, able to bring into your home the kinds of products that historically you could only get or traditionally get from you know friends like Ariane and and their companies or or going uh, in a in a very exclusive restaurant sense you had to go out and you had to visit your Michelin and and celebrated chef friends in their restaurants to get Farmer Lee Jones produce and Hudson Valley foie gras and the truth is that today. The silver lining is we can get those things. Now, what do we do with them? And mm -hmm. what we're doing is helping our friends in the industry survive. The silver lining is multifaceted. Um, we can get as gushy as saying that families are spending a lot more time at home together and are cooking together. We can also talk about the fact that there's major savings. You know, the average American has significantly more savings currently than they did in the past, that what's called the M2 money policy. So there's a lot of money that people are actually saving, which which this, you know, which you wouldn't think would be the case during an epidemic. And so people are cooking more at home, they're spending more family time together, and at the same time they're being forced to find these particular ingredients, and odds are they will continue in that path, because even technically if you can go back to a restaurant, people are probably not gonna do it as often, and I think that the fact that they see that you can, instead of buying a lobster roll for $28, you can probably make it for 10 um, and eat really well while still saving. And because a lot of people are at home and have that time, they're not running, they're not on vacations, not going out, the kids are at home. Um, those are all arguably silver linings for people. It doesn't affect the restaurant industry well, um, although, as you probably know, Chipotle just reported um, a few minutes ago today, and they've had a, that stock is skyrocketing, and that company has done extremely well um, for various other reasons. But but there's no question that the eating at home trend will last for some time. People will come back to their old habits, but it's going to take a couple of years. So that's, I guess, some silver lining. This has been illuminating, fascinating. And I knew that if we invited you on, that you could help us explain some of these concepts at the legislative level that is impacting our lives as food friends on the plate. And for that, I'm enormously grateful. I'll Thank give you, you a last word. Robert, do you have anything else you wanted yeah, to add? Can I just show my silver lining. I always have I always have a one a silver lining go-to, and I, I think the chef needs to see that. Oh, do you have to. Do, do you mind, Jennifer? No, you have to. Look at this. He's preparing himself. Go ahead. Yeah. Ready? Uh, <laughs> that's my silver lining, right? <laughs> now, now that, I think that hair has its own zip code. Okay, great. <laughs> Chef Brandon Pearson. Yeah, probably, probably Reno. <laughs> I think when okay. you put Grant and Kim Canteen Wallace side by side, I mean, that might be yeah. the... Yeah, I, I, I just want to, from another Scottish mother. Yeah, <laughs> I just want to say that Elizabeth has banned me from being the third wheel with Kim and Grant. They're all great. I, I am. Honored, I wonder why. I'm honored to have been in, included in your show. Thank you so much for having yes. us. And uh, anytime. Chef, yes, thank you. 
Thank you so much. You know, one of the things that's important for people to know, you know, we're afraid of cooking scallops. Some people are afraid of cooking lamb. We're afraid of cooking those things that have duck. Duck is one of those things that is, when I was a little girl and my great grandmother was the night room service manager at the Ritz Carlton Hotel in Boston, and I could go anywhere and do anything for my birthday, the treat was to go to the Ritz for lunch and have some duck. And her friends in the back of the house made that happen for me in a magical way. I argue that's why I'm here in this business. I'm a back of the house kind of girl. When in, in an unapologetic self promotion, I'll tell you that we started a few weeks ago a sous vide duck breast in order to facilitate that process for retail. And as we're talking about retail, so it's a shape, uh, shameless self plug. Brilliant. We have a sous vide, a sous vide, which means a a very controlled uh, vacuum-packed bag of duck breast, which is cooked to an even temperature, which all you need to do is throw on the skillet or the grill, and it's done with no risk, as well as a whole sous vide half duck, which is kind of like a duck carnitas, in order to allow people to kind of make that transition without as much fear. Oh, my gosh. Chef, um, one of the things that we do in the desert southwest is when we use duck, uh, and chefs like Maria Maison and um, and some of our other friends, uh, they do this marvelous. They they do a duck chicharron, where they take the duck skin, oh, yeah. and make it into a crispy chicharron, and then they top it on the taco or in in the. Yeah. It's sensational. We can do. We can run through the recipe next time. <laughs> so, so will will you come in and visit with us in a couple weeks and? And help people get over the fear factor of cooking duck, of, of maybe searing some foie, and showing us how, you know, these things are not as difficult as they seem. Like all things, if you have the best in the business, which we have in you, my friend, if you come and you can teach us, we will be able to enjoy this in our homes. And as this extends, or not, that we can continue to support the business like Hudson Valley that we wish to support. Um, Absolutely, any any time, and thank you so much. Right. Thank, thank you, you thank you, thank you, thank you, Robert. Wow, Jennifer, you were not very wordy today. I don't have anything to say because we had such extraordinary guests. As I, I had this lined up for you today, lined up for you today. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> Listen, I know that the. The stuff about the politics piece can be a lot, but it really impacts our lives. And I think it's really important for us to hear directly from the people on the front line of this about how it impacts our world. And I think that's why we reach out to our friends in the business. Well, that's I think why we also, we're here. Having Chef on today, I think we also need to reach out to Jimmy Steen, Franklin Pierce, Sid, Charlie Palmer. We need to get some of these guys on. Charlie may be a little skittish and scared because God knows what I'm going to bring up. But I think we need to get some of these guys, even Todd English. Right? We need to get some of these guys on. So let's do that. Okay, Jennifer? I mean, these are your friends in the business. I know. Hug your babies. Hug your kids and count your blessings. Whether you are thinking about becoming a restaurateur or you are already in the business, Michael Politz has written a must-read, The Food and Beverage Magazine's Guide to Restaurant Success. Pick up your copy today at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Books A Million, or wherever fine books are sold.